Welcome to the podcast for Windsor Road Baptist Church. Prepare your heart to receive God's message. Uh, we're continuing our uh, sermon series uh, based on the Gospel of Luke. This morning I'll be unpacking chapter 21, verses 3 to 58. And as Sue said earlier, this is my last sermon before I commence my sabbatical leave tomorrow. And I will be returning on Tuesday on the 19th of September. Uh, Even though it's my last sermon, I will not be preaching up a storm. I'll be speaking normally and preaching normally. But I will be talking about uh, three things to remember when we find ourselves in turbulent storms. Here are some of the most iconic buildings uh, that I've had the privilege of seeing with my own eyes. Um, Can we put that out, please? Yeah. So the first uh, is the Eiffel Tower. Uh, If you have others in your mind, other iconic buildings in your mind, hold them in your thought. Uh, Sue and I actually went up to the Eiffel Tower in 2008 uh, during our long service leave. On the same trip, we also visited the Roman Forum, visited the Roman Forum and the Leaning Tower of Pisa and several other uh, palaces in the UK and in France. Beautiful. It's a trip to remember. The next is Taj Mahal. I set foot there in 1987. It's quite a, a peaceful uh, place to be at. Once you're inside, but getting in is another story because you'll be stopped by hundreds of people wanting to sell you stuff, little souvenirs of the Taj Mahal. Um, then we have the majestic Twin Tower, Petronas in, in KL. Uh, that's where I come from originally. It's a glorious building. It's a wonderful building. You uh, can get to the, uh, the bridge. Um, but you have to uh, make a reservation for that. So it's, it, I think it's a, what do you call it? A bottomless it's a glass bridge. Yeah, so you can see. What do you call it? Yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah. Anyways, there you go. And the last but certainly not the least is our very own Sydney Opera House. Beautiful uh, place. But just imagine, just imagine being told that in not so many years from now, that all these buildings will be destroyed. Just imagine, just imagine being told that all these buildings will no longer be there in a few years' time. They will be destroyed, they will crumble. And this is exactly what Jesus said to his disciples will happen to the temple in Jerusalem as they were marveling at the grandeur of the enormous complex. This was a Tuesday. And on Thursday, Jesus will be betrayed by Judas, and on Friday, he will die. The temple was one of the greatest structures of the ancient world. The decorations of the temple were such uh, such as the golden-plated doors, giant lighting fixtures, exquisite Tapestries, beautiful stones and ornaments, finely crafted artwork were correspondingly grand. It was in the midst of a grand rebuilding program that began in 20 BC and continued until AD 63. And the expansion of the temple under Herod resulted in a huge temple precinct encompassing some 35 acres. 
According to Josephus, the first century Roman Jewish historian, Herod the Great quarried massive marble stones and polished them to a mirror finish with some of the blocks measuring over 20 meter in length, 2.3 meter in height, and 2.7 meter in thickness. So just imagine those figures, those stones. But the temple wasn't just and a magnificent grand building. It was the heart and soul of Israel's worship. But Jesus predicts its destruction in verse 26. As for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. He had actually made a similar prediction, in fact, the exact prediction, but earlier in chapter 19, verses 43 to 40, uh, 44. Now, the disciples' jaws, when they heard the words come out of Jesus' mouth, would have dropped at this point, just like you would have as you tried to imagine the total destruction, being told of the total destruction of the iconic buildings at the start of the service, at the start of the message. Immediately, the disciples wanted to know when this catastrophic event would take place. And this led to Jesus giving a discourse not only about the uh, destruction of Jerusalem and with it the temple, but also the end of time, his second coming, the coming of God's judgment, an event that would make the destruction of Jerusalem inconsequential in comparison. One might be able to avoid the former, but no one will be able to escape the latter. Now, his discourse starts with the end and works backwards to the present. It's like watching a movie backwards. So in the first part of the discourse from verses 8 to 11, he gives an overview of future history leading up to the end, that is the time of Jesus' return. He begins with a warning to his followers to not be deceived by an abundance of messianic pretenders, people who pretend to be the Messiah. And just as an aside, you'd be interested to know that someone counted that in the past 50 years alone, over 1,000 individuals have claimed to be the Messiah. 1,000 individuals in the last 50 years. Jesus says, ignore all of them. Don't believe a word they say. Don't read the next book written out by someone saying, oh, the end, is, the end of time is going to be in 2040 or in 2035. That's how they get rich. So don't make them rich by reading their books. Why is that? Because Jesus says his coming will be like a thief in the night, something he had told them about back in Luke chapter 17. But his return will be obvious and visible to all. There won't be some secret. When Jesus returns, it will be obvious to all. And besides, in a parallel account in Matthew 24, verse 36, Jesus said, only God the Father knows the day and hour of his return. So people who, who can predict the second coming of Christ, they're peddling lies because only God the Father knows the exact time and place of Je- uh, the, the day and hour of Jesus' return. 
There will also be the normal chaos and horrors of war and revolutions associated with living in an evil, fallen world. But Jesus says, don't be alarmed. These times will be turbulent, but the end is not yet. From verses 12 to 20, Jesus begins, before all of this, before all of this, Followers of Jesus, in addition to being impacted like everyone else by the chaos that he'd spoken of earlier, will be persecuted on his account. Indeed, not long after Jesus rose from the dead and was taken up to heaven, Peter and John healed a lame man in Acts chapter 3. You might remember that. For their good deed, they were thrown into prison. Then, of course, uh, four chapters later, Stephen became the first Christian martyr. And St. Paul, the Apostle Paul, sanctioned that killing. The reasons Jesus warned them and us of persecution is not to instill fear in us. Quite the opposite. He did it to instill in them and in us faith in God. How so? See, Jesus went on to say that persecutions will will only result in the spread of the gospel. Persecutions, far from stopping the spread of the gospel, will actually increase the spread of the gospel, will actually advance God's kingdom through his followers. Jesus continues in verse 14, but make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourselves. For I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. You will be betrayed even possibly by parents, brothers and sisters, relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. Everyone will hate you because of me, but not a hair of your head will perish. Stand firm and you will gain life. In a nutshell, Jesus is saying, take heart, take heart. Persecutions will come, but take heart. God has got this in hand. God has got you covered. Don't withdraw into fear. Don't withdraw into the siege mentality. Don't stop living. Don't buy a property up at Mount Glorious and hive off, which is what Christians tend, have done. Some Christians have done, haven't they? Haven't you read when you know when, 20, uh, when uh, Y2K came and people were saying, we're going to hunker down. We're going to buy property in the whoop whoop somewhere because there's going to be a lot of chaos and we want to avoid all of this. Sell up and go camping. Make sure we have two, three years, four years worth of goodies to keep us alive. Jesus, don't do that. I've got you covered. Don't live in fear. I've got you covered. The notion of persecution just doesn't resonate with us, does it? When I say persecution is coming, whatever. But that is not the case for many of our brothers and sisters who are persecuted for their faith today. 
In a 2022 report produced by Open Doors, it says persecution of Christians has reached the highest levels since it began accumulating data three decades ago. Hostility incidents have increased by 20% since just 2014, and some 360 million Christians, or 14% of the worldwide population of Christians, are said to have faced persecution, harassment, and discrimination. The Center for the Study of Global Christianity estimates that one million Christian martyrs were killed in the first 10 years of the 21st century. Just in this century alone, the first 10 years, one million of our brothers and sisters have died, have been killed for simply declaring their faith in Jesus. So persecution is a real thing. It's a constant threat. It's a constant thing that many of our brothers and sisters live under. In the following segment, in verses 20 to 28, Jesus gives a bit more detail on the destruction of Jerusalem. And it doesn't make for pleasant reading. When the city falls, so will the temple. Indeed, in AD 70, that is what happened when the future emperor of Rome, General Titus, sacked the city after a five-month-long siege. Jerusalem was decimated. Josephus, the historian I referred to earlier, tells us that a million Jews were killed. One million Jews were killed and nearly 100,000 taken captive, and thousands more scattered. And Jesus says to his hearers, Jerusalem should be avoided at all costs at this time. Verses 25 to 28 tells us that events tied to Jerusalem's desolation mirror events prior to the return of Jesus. He says, there will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars, On the earth, nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. Men will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. When these things begin to take place, stand up and lift up your heads, because Your redemption is drawing near. By the way, these signs and disasters that Jesus speaks of will be supernatural, not natural ones, directed by God for the sake of warning the wicked and calling them to repentance. After these signs, Jesus says he will return in great power and glory to establish the kingdom of God on earth and put an end to sin, evil, chaos, and suffering for good. And then in verses 29 to 31, Jesus illustrates uh, by using the parable, a very short parable of a fig tree, a common sight around Jerusalem. He gives an object lesson to his disciples on how to interpret and make sense of his predictions about the future. In the same way, Jesus' point was, in the same way you can tell the time of year by noting the condition of a fig tree, one can also know The end is near when these supernatural cosmic signs occur. 
When the fall, for instance, when the fall of Jerusalem happens, as terrible and as hopeless as that, it, it is not the end, but a sign that God is moving forward with his plan. In place of fear, it's the hope of God's total and complete redemption drawing near. And to drive home the certainty of his promise, Jesus asserts in verse 33, heaven and earth will pass away, but not my words. And we will do well to remember that God keeps his promises. We will do well to remember that God means what he says, and he says what he means. So, what is Jesus' point in revealing to his disciples what looks like a series of very wild and turbulent storms ahead. What is the point in Jesus doing that? How is that supposed to help his disciples then and every generation of disciples since, including us in the 21st century? Let me suggest three things that we are to remember in preparation for or when we find ourselves in the middle of violent and turbulent storms. Three things to remember. The first thing to remember is this, that God is firmly in charge. Jesus' discourse about the end of time is is meant to reassure, is meant to encourage, is meant to comfort us with the fact that God is firmly in charge. God is not overwhelmed. He's not taken aback by the events of the world that will take place, even as he remains fully engaged in what's going on in the world, he's saying to us, trust me, trust me, trust me, trust me. I control the direction of history. Be patient. I am not asleep at the wheel. Be patient. I am moving history forward. I'm advancing my plan and my purpose. You don't see the big picture, but I do. Trust me to know what I'm doing. Trust me when I say to you, I am in control. Trust me when I say to you, I am firmly in charge of history. I'm firmly in charge of your circumstance, of your situation. See, his words are not meant to be a source of debate, contention, and division in his church. And nothing divides the church more than the second coming of Jesus. At least one of the things that divides the church considerably is the coming of Jesus. People have split. Friendships have been lost. Uh, Churches have divided over this very issue of when Jesus will return and the circumstance of his return. What is your theology on Jesus' return? And people get their niggers in a knot. But Jesus' predictions about the future was not meant to be a source of division and contention. He is coming back. That is all we need to know. He's coming back. As for the details, let us not get dogmatic. Let us not get uncompromising. Let us not become obstinate with our views on the second coming of Jesus. He's also meant to reassure, encourage, and comfort us, even with the notion of Christians who will not be spared from the rough times before the end will arrive. 
we will suffer along with everyone else, and even more so in some parts of the world because of persecution, because of our faith. I really appreciate the fact that Jesus is being honest with us. And I hate to be bearer of more bad news, but you need to know that sometimes you may find yourselves in the middle of a violent storm precisely because you have set your heart and mind to follow Jesus, not in spite of it. Are you hearing that? I hate to be bearer of bad news. You might find yourselves in the middle of turbulent, violent storms precisely because you have set your heart and mind to follow Jesus, not in spite of it. Remember Mark 4? Whose idea was it to sail the boat across the lake? It was Jesus' idea. So you can say that Jesus led the disciples right into the storm. Did you, not, did you think that Jesus did not know the storm was coming? He knew the storm was coming, and he led them right into it. He led them right into it. Can you fathom that possibility that the storm that you might not all storms, because some storms that we find ourselves in are self-inflicted. We brought the storms upon ourselves. But there are certainly storms that you find yourselves in. No one is at fault. It's not your sin. It's nobody else's sin. It's because God led you into that storm. It is not the sort of news you want to hear, but I rather bad news. That's true than good news that's made up to spare me from the pain of bad news. I rather bad news so that I can prepare so I know what to expect than to be in denial about or avoid bad news. As the late Ursula Le Guin, an American atheist creative science fiction writer, said, I'd rather get bad news from an honest man than lies from a flatterer. I'd rather get good news, bad news from an honest man than lies from a flatterer. And Jesus is no flatterer. There's nothing we can do to prevent some of the storms of life from happening to us. Yes, God is firmly in charge. But this does not mean that there's nothing we can do to prepare for these storms. And that is what verses 34 and 36 are about. Jesus continuing, be careful or your hearts will be weighed down with dissipation, drunkenness, and the anxieties of life, and that day will close on you unexpectedly like a trap, for it will come upon all those who live on the face of the whole earth. Be always on the watch and pray that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. In that passage, we're instructed on what not to do and what to do when we are in the middle of turbulent storms. And that is the second thing to remember in preparation for or when you find yourself in the middle of turbulent storms. What not to do, that's the second thing. Be on guard, Jesus says. Be on guard against dissipation, drunkenness and anxiety as responses to storms and life. Jesus said, these things will weigh you down. They will drag you down. 
When life goes pear-shaped, when life gets us down, when life throws us one curveball after another, when we are confronted with painful or bad news, we tend to respond in one of two ways or both. The first is we avoid. Psychologists will say the flight response. We avoid, we run, we pretend, we slip into denial. And what better way to do this than through dissipated living and drunkenness? Throw ourselves inordinately into anything, intoxicate ourselves with alcohol or other measures to numb our pain, to distract us from the source of discomfort, from the source of pain. Do everything else but face the pain. Do everything else but confront the thing that is causing us great angst and distress. And sure, when we run away, when we intoxicate ourselves, when we live in dissipated living, they bring temporary relief until the hangover. Nietzsche was right when he wrote, the mother of excess is not joy, but joylessness. The mother of excess is not joy, but joylessness. Now, the other thing that we do if we're not uh, intoxicating ourselves, not just with drunkenness, but with all kinds of things, yeah, to distract. The other thing we do is spend such an inordinate amount of time and energy worrying about things we cannot control. Just worry, worry, worry. We're paralyzed by anxiety. And it has the same effect as dissipation and drunkenness. Dissipation, drunkenness, and anxiety, as Jesus said, act like traps. They render us immobilized. They render us unproductive and ineffective for God and his kingdom. They will dull our hearts for the Lord. They will negatively impact our spiritual appetites and deaden our spiritual sensitivity. Don't go down those pathways, Jesus cautions us. If we do, before you know it, life would have passed you by. Opportunities missed that you can never have again. So Jesus says, don't do that when you go through storms. What are we to do then when we find ourselves in turbulent storms? Well, that's the third thing. The second thing is how not to respond. The third thing is how to respond. Jesus will return to put all things right and in order. Our day of deliverance will come. Jesus is coming back for us. But in the meantime... Jesus says, remember to keep watch, to stand fast, and to be prayerful. In other words, don't give in to panic. As tempting as that is, don't give in to fear. As tempting as that is, as natural as that feels. Don't throw the towel in. Don't check out through drunkenness or anxiety. Because God is not asleep at the wheel. He's in the boat with you. Therefore, keep living. Therefore, keep persevering. Therefore, keep sowing. Therefore, keep working. Keep plowing through in the face 
of rough times. The life that we've been given on earth is just too precious to throw away. The life we've been given has enormous value to just let it go to waste. Our faith in God should never make life less happy, less fulfilling, less joyful, less peaceful, less productive. Our faith in God should never make people worse, less gracious, less generous, less kind, less compassionate, less loving. Our belief about eternal life should never justify us in not making this life as good as we can for as many as we can for the glory of God. Amen? Our conviction about eternal life should never justify us in not making this life as good as we can for as many as we can. We're not to become so preoccupied about the future that we lose sight of our calling in the present. As a Bible commentator makes the point, And I quote, Jesus taught about the end, but he never majored in it. He longed to lead people into a healthy relationship to God in the here and now. We must constantly be on the watch, but only in a way that serves God honorably so that Jesus' return is a reason to rejoice without shrinking back. In other words, don't put your life on hold just because you're finding life hard right now. Don't check out. Devote yourself to prayer, Jesus says. Devote yourself to continuing in living faithful lives and fruitful lives that glorifies God even in the face of turbulent storms. Just to sum up, Here are the three things to remember in preparation for and when we find ourselves in the middle of violent storms. Number one, remember that God is firmly in charge. He is our cornerstone. Number two, be on guard against dissipation, drunkenness, anxieties as coping mechanisms, if you like, to storms in life. And number three, Instead of that, keep watch. Make the most of opportunities that come your way. Be alert. Don't be a sloth. But be alert. Keep watch. And stand fast. Life is not fair. God gets it. But don't let life get you down. Don't let setbacks in life, injustices in life, get you down. Stand fast, hold on to God's promises for you. And be prayerful. Cast all your anxieties on him for he cares about you. Let us pray. Oh God, who's greater than the most powerful forces in this world, enable us to be still and know that you are God when we find ourselves in the middle of storms. 
O Lord, who answers out of the whirlwind of everyday life, breathe in us your Holy Spirit to strengthen, to comfort, to guide us in the midst of the storm. Mighty God, who speaks a word of peace to calm our troubled sea, caring God, who nudges us away from fear and toward faith, ever-present God, who fills us with all, but also raises many questions without easy answers. Open our eyes to see you in our boat today. Strengthen our hearts for the challenges that lie ahead. Open our ears this hour, this day, this week, to hear your still small voice that we might, be, that we might continue to make our mark in our front lines for your glory through your Holy Spirit in our lives. We pray all this in the name of the one who calmed the raging sea. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope that you have been blessed by the message. Windsor Road Baptist Church is a growing intergenerational and international community of people committed to whole life discipleship. Please visit us at windsorroad.org.au to connect with us and to learn more about our church.